Well, it's a big matter choosing your next leader. I mean, just ask the American voters last year when it came to deciding between Barack Obama and John McCain as to who should be their next president. In the end, voters went with Obama, and in about a week's time, he's going to be sworn in as the 44th president of the United States. But Obama didn't get to that position without a long and drawn-out campaign when he had to convince the voters that he was the right man for the job. See, it is a a big thing choosing the person who will lead your country because that person will determine the direction of your country in the future. And that's the situation we find the prophet Samuel in in our passage this morning. He has been commissioned by God to anoint the next leader of his people, Israel. It was a time of change for the nation of Israel. In the previous chapters, their king Saul had repeatedly rejected God and his ways and gone his own way to the point where God finally rejected him in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel. And God promises to raise up another king in Saul's place. And that new king, we discover right at the end of the reading this morning, was a man called David. And this morning we're beginning a five-week series looking at some of the key moments in David's life. See, 1 Samuel 16 records the beginning of David's reign. It's a time of change for Israel. And so it is fitting for us to look at it in the first Sunday in January. Again, I don't know about you, but the beginning of a new year for me is, it's a time of mixed emotions. Looking back, we can celebrate the good things of the past year. Maybe achievements that we've made, people who've mattered to us, memories we will cherish. I became a dad in 2008. That's a good memory to cherish. But not all our memories are necessarily good ones of the year just gone. For most of us, there'll be feelings of regret about the past year too. Regret over things we said or did. Regret over things we left unsaid, left undone. So the beginning of a new year seems to offer us a chance, a golden opportunity to make some changes. To say, I'm going to learn from past mistakes, past failures, and make a fresh start. And I want to suggest that as we look to the coming year, with that mixture of of hope and maybe nervousness, we need to answer a fundamental question. A question very similar to the one faced by the United States last year, and similar to the one faced by Israel in this chapter. And that question is, who will we follow in 2009? Who or what will we live for? Who or what will determine the direction of our lives? And you see, there's loads of answers we could give to that question. And many of them are good answers. You could say, well, I'm this year, I'm going to live for my family. I'm going to dedicate myself to caring for those closest to me, whether that's your husband or your wife, whether that is your parents, whether that's your children, they will be the ones who determine the direction of my life in the coming year. I want to serve them. Or you could decide that your job will be what will drive you this coming year. You want to give everything to that job. You feel God has called you to that. So the expectations of your boss, your colleagues, will determine the direction of your life in the coming year. Or perhaps there are individuals that you know, friends of yours, who you want to commit yourself to 
in the coming year. Perhaps a group of close friends who mean a lot to you. Perhaps a particular friendship that might develop into something more in the coming year. See, who or what will you live for in 2009? Who or what will be your leader in 2009? And I believe this passage this morning, 1 Samuel 16, helps us to see this is the only person worth following in the coming year. It's a chapter that introduces the character of David onto the pages of 1 Samuel. It's the first time David appears in the pages of the Bible. And the question that drives this chapter onwards, the question that basically consumes the prophet Samuel on behalf of Israel is, well, who will lead us? Who will be our next king? And God gives Samuel the answer in this chapter. See, God has provided David to be the king over his people, Israel. And as we look at some of the reasons for that choice, as we look at some of the lessons God wants to teach Samuel in his choice of David, I want us to see this morning that that standing behind David in this chapter is a far greater king who God has provided to be our king, our Lord, in 2009. And that is David's great descendant, Jesus Christ. He is the king standing behind David in this chapter. And see, time and again in the coming weeks, we're going to see that while David is in many respects an ordinary believer like us, who struggles with the same things we struggle with, who has the same triumphs and disasters in his life, in other respects, David's life and reign is like one sustained picture of Jesus, the greater king who would come 1,000 years later. So at its best, David's character and reign foreshadow Jesus' character and reign as we see it in the New Testament. Well, even at its worst, when David falls into sin, he helps us see with greater clarity why it is we need Jesus to lead us. Why it is we needed Jesus to come into the world and take charge of our lives and of our world. So 1 Samuel 16 is... I think in a very real sense, a portrait of God's chosen king, Jesus. And I believe it can help us to see some of the reasons why Jesus presents himself as the king worth following in the coming year. So let's turn to this chapter together now. I mean, a quick word on the story so far in 1 Samuel. We're coming into the middle of this book. And we've already said, really, you could summarize the opening chapters of 1 Samuel in the phrase, it's the search for a king. See, time and again in this book, we meet actual or potential leaders for God's people Israel, and time and again, those leaders are found wanting. So in the opening chapters of 1 Samuel, it is Eli the priest and his sons who prove to be a failure. Then Samuel becomes a leader, and he is a good leader, a godly leader, but then his sons are waiting to succeed him, and they are corrupt and unjust. So the people of Israel ask, for another king. And in chapter 9 of 1 Samuel, God gives them that king, King Saul. But quickly, he too begins to reject God and his ways until God rejects him in chapter 15. So this search for a king, this search for a ruler on behalf of Israel is not going well in 1 Samuel. So as we turn to verse 1 
of chapter 16, we find Samuel in a despondent mood. He is grieving over the repeated failure of Israel to find a godly king. And in particular, Samuel is grieving over Saul and what has happened to him. Just read from verse 1 here. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? See, the Lord has to speak to Samuel because Samuel is taking God's rejection of Saul very badly here to the point where God needs to open his eyes to the future. You see, in the preceding chapters, it becomes clear that Samuel really had a lot of personal affection for Saul. Samuel seemed to really love Saul. Back in chapter 10, when he anoints Saul king, he not only pours oil on Saul's head, he actually kisses Saul. See, Saul had this huge amount of affection for this man, Saul. And more than that, he had placed all his hopes for Israel onto the shoulders of King Saul. And now Saul has been rejected by God. And Samuel grieves. Samuel cannot get over that. It still hurts Samuel. From his point of view, Israel's loss of Saul is a disaster from which they will never recover. But as verse 1 continues, the Lord challenges Samuel in that view. The Lord helps Samuel see the situation is nowhere near as bleak as he fears. Back to verse 1 there. The Lord said to Samuel, Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. And see, the Lord's words of challenge to Samuel here are, I believe, words of challenge to us at the beginning of a new year. Because the Lord is challenging Samuel to move forward with him. And he's reminding Samuel that God is in control. See, in this, in this verse, Samuel is paralysed by his grief over Saul to the point where the Lord has to remind him, Saul is not the supreme king. I am, says the Lord. And if the prophet Samuel needed that reminder, how much more do we need to remember God's control today? It is always painful when the people or things we have placed our trust in, our hope in, let us down. And that may have happened to you in 2008. Perhaps you place your hopes in someone, a friend or a family member, a work colleague, or just just a relationship that you thought, that person will always be there for me. That person will stand by me. And then you discover that they are only human. You discover that they are sinful too. You discover that you couldn't put all your weight on their shoulders. And you're grieving over that. It now feels like your faith has been misplaced. Or perhaps you look at the things in your life that you've poured your energy into over the past year. Maybe your family, your job, a particular path for the future. And it now feels like, well, you're nowhere near where you hoped you would be. Samuel thought, well, Saul's going to be king now. Things are going to improve. But now here in verse 1, he's looking back and saying, where are we? 
we're just as lost as we always were. And perhaps that is a similar feeling to the way you feel today. Your plans have been frustrated. Your family or your job has not given you the satisfaction you hoped it would. And it hurts. It stings. You grieve over that. Perhaps you even feel frustrated with God that he has allowed your hopes to dwindle. But if that's how you feel, then then listen to God's words to Samuel here. See, with the fall of Saul, Samuel felt that all hope for the future was lost. But he had reckoned without a sovereign, gracious God. See, God had other plans for Israel. He had other plans for Samuel. And he had a far better king in mind than Saul could ever be. By verse 13 of this chapter, Samuel was anointed David as king. And David would go on to be the greatest king Israel had ever had in its history. You see, the Lord was in control. He had plans to prosper Israel. And Samuel had a vital role to play in those plans. But first Samuel needed to be willing to move forward. To stop grieving. To recognize that in spite of the failures that have hurt him, God is still in control. So we need to ask the question, why is it such a struggle for us to move beyond past Greece, past fears? Why is it such a struggle for us to have the courage to move ahead with God because we do not do that naturally and I believe for the same reasons that Samuel struggled to move forward with God and the first of those reasons we've looked at already it is regret over the past again that fear that well other things in the past have let me down therefore how can I have confidence in God for the future And crucially, that can be bound up with our past failures. In some senses, Samuel regrets that Saul has let him down, but also Samuel fears for himself and for all of Israel. We have just kept on sinning. We have kept on failing to trust God. And now Samuel fears that Saul's sin had ruined any chance God had of transforming Israel, of Israel enjoying the blessings of being God's people in the future. From Samuel's perspective, Israel had sinned once too many, and now he feared God would abandon them. And that may be a fear that sounds familiar to you. You look back at the past year and you go, well, I kept failing to trust God. Perhaps I've just done that once too often. I kept going back to the same sin. I have done that once too often. This time last year I swore things would be different and now I feel just where I was 12 months ago. Surely God has given up on me. Surely I have squandered any chance of enjoying his blessing, his fellowship in the coming year. I see, if that's how you feel this morning, look again at this passage and learn from Samuel. You see, God's plans for Israel are not sabotaged by Saul's sin. God is able to provide for himself another king 
from Jesse's family. Saul's sin was not able to destroy God's plans for Israel and through them for the world. And similarly, our sin is not able to destroy God's plans for us and for our lives. See, we often fear that God's purposes for us are, are fragile and that just, we just need to slip up once and they're gone. I chat to people who just are terrified sometimes that they have missed out on God's will for their lives. Things are difficult for them. They are suffering now and they think, well, maybe there was a chance once, a long time ago, when I could have started on this road and I would be in God's will, but that is gone now. God's purposes are in ruins now because I messed up. You see, learn from Samuel here. God's purposes are robust. God is strong and he is stronger than our sin. And he is able to overcome our sin. See, we don't have to be paralyzed by regret for the past. Because God has provided us with a king who can remove the consequences of that past. God raised up for himself another king from Bethlehem, Jesus. And that king has removed the sin of everyone who puts their trust in him and he has paid the price for it once and for all at the cross. And that is something we need to hear every day of our lives, no less so than at the beginning of a new year. See, the cross tells us God will not punish the same sin twice. If we have trusted in Jesus and placed our sin on him at the cross, then that sin has been punished and it is over. It is in the past. We are free to move forward with God. We do not have to let our past sins, our past failures, hinder us, make us stumble. Instead, we can move forward with God and trust in him for the future. See, regret for the past cannot stop us moving forward if we entrust those regrets to Jesus. But another thing that can stop us moving forward with God is a very real fear for Samuel as well, and that is fear of the future. Samuel is not only anxious about the past, about the past sins of Israel, but also he is terrified about the future. Verses 2 to 3. God tells Samuel to go and anoint a new king in Bethlehem. But Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. You see, in verse 2, Samuel moves beyond the grief for the past to the fear of the future. If Samuel obeys God and anoints a new king in Bethlehem, then Saul will kill him. King Saul will not give up his throne without a fight. He knows that Saul is a powerful enemy. But again, he's forgotten that he serves an even more powerful God. And in a way, I, I love God's provision of protection here for Samuel. Because it's actually not by a miracle. Again, we often read the Bible and go, well, that's very well for them. That was a miracle that God used. But God would never use a miracle for me. But God doesn't use a miracle to protect Samuel. He uses a heifer. 
uses a small bit of livestock that he's going to sacrifice when he gets there. And that's his, his get-out-of-jail-free card with Saul. Because while I'm here with a heifer, I'm going to sacrifice to God. I'm also going to anoint a new king while I'm here. But look at the heifer. That's what I'm here to do. See, God protects Samuel from Saul. And he can use even a heifer to do this. And God is able to protect us in the coming year as individuals and as a church as we step out to follow him and make him known in a hostile world. God can do that because he's in control. He can work through miracles and we can rejoice in that. He can also work through mundane things. But above all, we need to see God is in control for 2009. I can move forward with him because he is a God worth following and he does protect his people. So by verse 6, Samuel has arrived safely in Bethlehem and now he has a king to anoint from Jesse's family. The Lord's told them where to go so Jesse gathers his sons together and as Samuel meets them all, one of them stands out straight away. See, Samuel has come looking for a king and almost immediately he thinks he's found him. Verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord has another lesson to teach Samuel here. A lesson to teach us through Samuel. And that's in verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. See, God's lesson for Samuel is a lesson we need today, and that is don't be seduced by appearances. Wait for God and he will show you what is worth living for. He will show you the king, Jesus. See, Samuel's come looking for a king, but the Lord's determined that Samuel is going to get that choice right. Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him, says the Lord. See, Eliab, he looked the part. He looked every inch a king. He was tall. He was handsome. He looked impressive. But then again, so did Saul. If you turn for a moment back to chapter 9, verse 2 of 1 Samuel. This is when we're introduced to the character of Saul before he becomes king. And Saul is described as an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than any of the others. See, Eliab was like Saul. He was another Saul. And if Samuel had been left to his own devices, he would have anointed Eliab king over Israel and the problems would have begun all over again. But thankfully the Lord did not let Samuel do that. God intervened with a message for Samuel to explain why Eliab was not his chosen king. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. See what God's saying here. Don't be seduced by appearances, 
Samuel. I have someone better in mind to be king. And like Samuel, we need to hear that message when it comes to the question of who we will follow in 2009. You see, in our world, appearances, image, is everything. We are conditioned to be attracted to the Eliabs of this world. And by contrast, Christians and the message of Jesus can appear pretty feeble, unimpressive, ugly even, by comparison. Again, take the Christian beliefs about the Bible. See, based on outward appearance alone, who in their right mind would ever take the time to read an ancient, long, sometimes confusing book to get guidance for their lives when they could just go to an expert today? They could just go online, read a book, read a magazine. Why would you go to the Bible? Or take Jesus' teaching about sex. Again, who in their right mind would limit themselves to just finding a Christian partner when there's a world out there to choose from? Who would choose to abstain from sex until they get married and then just limit themselves to sleeping with that one person for the rest of their lives? Who, if they don't get married, would say, well, I'm never going to have sex because that's not right for me. I'm not married. Based on outward appearances, that just looks crazy. Or look at the church. See, belonging to a church family, it can be hard work. It requires a lot of compromise, sacrifice, bearing with one another. The more diverse the group, the more hard work it takes. And again, you think, on outward appearance alone, why would I commit myself to that? Why would I give me that myself that hard work of living alongside other people when I could just do my own thing? See, if we simply make judgments on the basis of outward appearances, as Samuel initially does in verse 6, then there's no contest. Eliab will win out every time. The world will win out every time. When it comes to appearances, the world we live in has things sewn up. Until we realise that outward appearance is actually all the world has to offer. And so we scratch beneath the surface of an Eliab and we find not a leader, but a tyrant. We find not purpose, but, but a lack of meaning. We don't find joy. We find futility. See, for all the experts it can produce, our world is still struggling with the same problems it always has done. Today, it is global recession, family breakdown, terrorism, but in cycles, that has always been the struggle of our world. The sexual revolution that promised us freedom has actually enslaved us. The enjoyment of multiple sexual partners has resulted in more and more people struggling to commit to just one partner for more than a few years at a time. That freedom actually has closed off aspects of faithfulness that we need to be fully human. And as for meaningful relationships, as for community, well, more and more people are desperately lonely. As they miss out on the need we all have for a loving, sacrificial commitment within a community with people who are different to us. 
but who can care for us. See, Eliab might look attractive at first, but the Lord has to teach Samuel and he has to teach us, don't be seduced by appearances. I have something better planned for you. And that something better arrives in verse 11. See, Jesse has had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel, under the direction of the Lord, has rejected them all. Verse 11 and 12. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. See, Jesse didn't think to have David pass before Samuel. David was the youngest of his sons, the smallest of his sons. One modern translation has Jesse described David as the runt. He's just the one that you don't really bother with. But you see, the Lord had other plans. And David is finally brought before Samuel in verse 12. And just look again at how David is described. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. See, after verse 7, you'd almost expect David to be this hideous monstrosity. If we're not meant to judge by appearances, well, we're going to get the ugly kid to be the king. But you see, when God's king does arrive, he is worth waiting for. And in this, David is a powerful picture to us of his descendant, God's true chosen king, Jesus. You see, Jesus' attractiveness, his his beauty, if you like, is not the airbrushed, all-singing, all-dancing beauty the world offers us. But when we look at him, Jesus is attractive. He is glorious. If we actually look at him, we will discover again and again that Jesus' beauty outstrips anything the world has to offer us. See, Jesus' beauty is seen most clearly in his sacrificial service, in his humility, in his love for the unloved, the unlovely. We see Jesus' beauty as he reaches out and touches a leper and heals him, even though the rest of society rejects him. We see Jesus' beauty as he reaches out to a woman grieving over the loss of her only son and says, don't cry, and raises her son to life. We see Jesus' beauty when he stands up to a crowd determined to stone a woman caught in adultery and he sends them away. We see Jesus' beauty when in the Garden of Gethsemane he refuses to call down twelve legions of angels to defend him, but instead he willingly goes with his captors to what he knows will be his death. And on that cross we see Jesus' beauty when he asks his Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. And then we see Jesus' beauty when he rises again and he comforts his friends and he promises them, I will not leave you as orphans. 
and he sends his Holy Spirit to equip them to give them life. See, Jesus' beauty is not the world's beauty. It's not the beauty of an Eliab. But it is a beauty that ultimately will satisfy us. That ultimately will give us life and joy. Jesus' beauty is worth following. See, Samuel had to learn not to be seduced by appearances. And so do we. Again, it's interesting here, Samuel had the direct voice of God to guide him in this instance. God stopped him making the wrong decision. We may not have that direct voice, but we do have the Word of God. We have the Bible, and on every page of it, we see aspects of the beauty and glory of Jesus that will help us and train our minds to see through the appearance of the world. So this year, let's meditate on who Jesus is in the pages of Scripture. Let's see how his beauty will outstrip anything the world has to offer. And then let's treasure him rather than the world, rather than an Eliab. Let's have our eyes fixed on the true King, Jesus. So God has a lot to teach Samuel in this chapter. And through Samuel, he has a lot to teach us. See, like Samuel, we need to see that we we can move forward in our lives to serve God with confidence and with courage in spite of past regrets and future fears because God is in control of our lives in 2009. And like Samuel, we need to see through the outward appearance of the world and trust instead in Jesus. And the chapter finishes with, I think, a wonderful encouragement for us as we look ahead to 2009. Just read verse 13 for us. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. See, David received the Spirit of the Lord with power here as he is anointed king. And this again is a picture for us of the power of God's king, Jesus. The power of Jesus is a power he uses to transform the lives of people who follow him. So we didn't read it earlier on, but the second half of 1 Samuel 16 It's an amazing story where David is used by God to bring refreshment and relief to the very man God had rejected as king, King Saul. See, Saul, by this stage, he's a tragic figure. He's a man who's rejected God, so he's in turn rejected by God. And he's tormented by, by, by an injurious spirit, the text says. Sent by God as an act of judgment on Saul's rejection of God. But then, in an astonishing picture of grace, David, the man who will succeed Saul, through his music, is used by God to bring relief to Saul, as undeserving as Saul is. And that again, for us, 
is a picture of Jesus. God's chosen king is an instrument of God's grace towards undeserving people. And he is the power to transform our lives. You see, David is used by God to transform Saul's mood in the short term. But how much more can we ask God's King Jesus to transform and refresh us as we trust in him in the coming year? See, if God is gracious even to a Saul, how much more gracious will he be to those who follow his son, who genuinely want to live for Jesus with their lives? See, we're not left alone to follow Jesus. We're not left alone with our New Year resolutions to just make a change in our lives. No, Jesus has the power to transform our lives. He has the power to bring about real change. The power to keep us following him, even when we feel our hearts prone to wander, to stray. See, Jesus is is a beautiful king, but he's also a powerful king king and through seeing his beauty we are changed we are bound more and more to him and he can preserve us and sustain us in the coming year so that is the beginning of David's reign and is a picture of Christ's reign over his people I don't know about you, but I need to hear these truths from 1 Samuel 16. I need to hear that God is in control if I'm going to step out for him. Because so often, I lose sight of him. I fear for myself. I panic for the course of my life. But God tells us here, don't panic. I have a king. I have chosen him. He will lead you. All you need to do is trust in him I need to see the beauty of Jesus this year to see following him not just a grim duty or obligation but actually he is more beautiful more glorious than anything else I could ever have in my life and that is why I remain faithful to him that is why he is worth following and I need to see that Jesus has the power to transform me, to refresh me. We do need to be refreshed by Jesus, don't we? We need that new life that only comes from him to keep us going. We need Jesus to be our king in 2009. So who will you follow this coming year? I want to finish with a, a verse from, from an old hymn, Come Thy Fount of Every Blessing, that I think captures our need to ask Jesus to reign in our lives this year. O oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love 
Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above.